So um, we're here to talk about China, Russia, Trump, and uh, global risk. So we should be over in five minutes or so. There's not much to, to discuss. Uh, we're honored to have uh, a congressman, my congressman, Ted Liu, here with us, Ian Bremer, founder of Eurasia Group, host of uh, G Zero World, and uh, one of the world's leading experts on global risk. And Congressman, I'd like to start with you because um, way back when I worked on Capitol Hill, uh, it seemed like Republicans criticized Russia and praised right. the FBI, and now we're living in like bizarro world of that. So what's going right. on? Uh, that's correct. First, let me thank all of you for being here. I'm very honored to be at this summit. And the one thing you should know is I'm a recovering computer science major. Uh, so to uh, answer your question, one of the most disappointing things I've seen the last two years is Republicans completely caving on their principles and really doing 180 degrees simply to enable a president that doesn't have all his marbles. So we are uh, in very dicey times. And I think it's one reason the Democrats took control of the House last November, because the American public wanted to see a separate and co-equal branch of government act the way it should. It's, it's one thing that came to the president, but we're seeing Republicans who are critical of the president, who are extremely critical of Russia, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, who, who seem to have spun. Are, do, you, do you see neutral explanations for that? I mean, in all honesty, like how, how do you wrap your mind, how are we supposed to wrap our mind around that? Uh, uh, the simplest explanation is self-preservation, right? Republican members of Congress want to get reelected. They've seen what happens when other Republicans stand up to the president. They get taken out in their own primaries, like Mark Sanford, Republican member of Congress. So it's purely self-preservation. It's not based on principle. I would hope that if we had a Democratic president that acted the way Trump did, uh, I would stand up and then, and then lose my election. But then I could look at myself in the mirror. Gotcha. Okay, so Ian, um, every year you guys publish for like two decades now a global risk assessment. You, you rank them, you keep them up all year so people can see how, how, whether you're right or not. And if I'm not mistaken, for the first time this year, the United States is showing up on there. Can you, can you talk about how that happened and where, where you see us? Yeah, I mean, look, it's low, right? I mean, so we've done this for 21 years now, and the U.S. is risk number five this year. Domestically, that's never happened before. Having said that, the U.S. is by far the world's most important economy. It's the largest military by a large margin. It ain't number one. So you don't usually see political risks emanating from a country as stable as the United States, but given how much our institutions will be tested in reaction to investigations that this year come to a head against the three things Trump cares about, you know, which is his business, his family, and himself, uh, you have to recognize that you could see an, ex an attempt to expand the traditional limits of executive power and undermine what are the balance of powers and the legitimate institutions in the United States. But I would say that on the foreign policy side, right, U.S.-Russia policy, despite all the things that Trump has said, that look really weird in terms of how much he seems to idolize Vladimir Putin, our policy towards Russia is about as hard as it has been, in some cases a little harder, than it was under Obama. We're giving the Ukrainians defensive weapons. We didn't before. You look at Venezuela today. I mean, that policy in going after Maduro is absolutely the antithesis of what Vladimir Putin would want. So we do need to recognize that the constraints on Trump as an individual, he's only one guy, in foreign policy are greater than one might imagine watching cable news. Well, so yes, and um, the folks at Protect Democracy have met with all the experts on autocracy and how empires fall and, 
and they've cataloged like the, the autocrats playbook, right? So it's quashing dissent, it's spreading disinformation, it's delegitimizing elections, there's like six top, and it's like check, 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 check. So how worried should we be about the stability of our institutions, of norms actually staying in place, which actually hold up what, what we do in our democracy? Right. Uh, so I have two answers to that. I'm generally somewhat more hopeful than some of my colleagues. Even before last November's elections, when American voters had a chance to put in Democrats in the House, we still had a Republican-led investigation and a Republican Department of Justice against the Republican president. That's pretty amazing. Not a lot of countries would have sustained that. And second, I think there is something similar between China and Russia in terms of how they attack the U.S. with their soft power, one of which is through cyber attacks. And um, for those of you here in the room, both the public sector and the private sector are pretty far behind in terms of cybersecurity, but especially uh, in uh, the government side. So uh, we need help, and we also need technical expertise on Capitol Hill. I'm one of four computer science majors in Congress. We have these institutions that help us with different issues. I'm not going to name this particular one, so we called them up last year. I had a cybersecurity question, and then about an hour later, a call came back saying, we don't have anyone here that can answer that. And that's a problem. And so we need to just build up capacity at, at our governmental levels. Do you worry about the U.S. institutions holding up? Um, look, I, I do, but the thing that worries me most is not the Russians, it's ourselves. I mean, when we're the largest superpower in the world, the good news is that no other country can damage us as much as we can damage ourselves. That's the bad news, too. Think about the 2008 financial crisis. Whose fault was that, right? I mean, when I look at the Russian cyber attacks against the U.S. during the 2016 elections, I also look at what the Russians did against the Germans in the run-up to their elections. Absolutely same playbook. But in Germany, you didn't have that same level of festering wound and divide internally, so people were not as willing to buy the fake news. They took advantage of the weaknesses inherent in our own system, and if we really want to fight that, of course, we need to do the good work Ted and others are doing to build our own defenses, but ultimately, we have to start leading more by example. So let's, let's talk about Russia for, for a minute, specifically. Um, obviously, nuclear, cyber, uh, uh, social engineering, right? We're seeing their, their powers in so many ways, but they have an economy smaller than Italy's, right? So imagine a world where, where Russia doesn't have leverage over the president and, or, the, or this is not our president. How worried would we be about Russia in that universe? And then I'm interested in how worried we should be given the universe that we're in. Uh, I gotta start. I, I, for me, the big mistake we made as the United States was in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed and no one even remotely considered a Marshall Plan for the defeated Soviets, for the defeated Russians, right? We gave them shock therapy. Here, have Jeff Sachs. That will fix things, right? Sorry. Um, and, and the Chinese are the ones doing the Marshall Plan now. They're the ones with the Belt and Road. They're the ones that are spending huge money building infrastructure, getting people aligned with them. So yes, they steal our IP, but much more concerningly, they steal our strategy. And that was how we got the world that we have, that we've taken such advantage of. Now, 27 years later, 28 years later, the problem we have with Russia is that they are a country in severe decline, economy smaller than Italy, smaller than Canada, but they're really angry at us. They feel like we are a part of the reason for that, that we don't care about them. 
and they're much more willing to use the power they have, which by the way includes rough parity on cyber with offensive capabilities, to directly undermine us. They're doing everything they can to unwind a US-led global system. They don't want stability either in the US, inside Europe, the transatlantic relationship in the Middle East or anywhere else. And while there are other people that are like that in the world, none of them have the scale and institutional heft of the rush. So, so at the risk of asking like an incredibly just obtuse question here, like why is chaos good for Putin? Why, why does he want that? Uh, so I'm on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and we've looked at these various issues. Uh, so following up what Ian said, Putin is very mad at what he perceives as uh, the Soviet Union collapsing, believes the U.S. did that. He also believes Hillary Clinton interfered in his own elections. He was trying to get back at us. And he's just trying to sow dissent in Western democracies, not just the U.S., but also with Brexit, uh, with Germany. And he's played a very weak hand fairly well, right? California's economy is larger than Russia's economy. But then we also have a president of the United States that has unexplainable behavior towards Putin, right? He uh, defers to Putin. He did not want to even sanction Russia for their election interference until bipartisan majorities of the House and Senate forced him to with a law. He continues to make statements like, you know, wanting to get the U.S. out of NATO. That benefits no one except Russia. And then he recently lifted sanctions on Deripaska, which is Putin's friend, for no good reason. And so when you look at this, it is behavior that is very, very strange and makes people think, well, what does Putin have on Donald Trump? Ian, you mentioned um, uh, Russia and China potentially coming together here, right? I mean, you referenced that at least. Given the U.S. stepping away from the, the leadership position it's held post-World War II, um, what's actually happening between Russia and China, and should we be worried about a, a dangerous, if not unholy, alliance emerging there? Tactically, yes. Uh, the Russians and the Chinese certainly see that in battling against U.S. technology supremacy, for example, sharing of surveillance methods, big data, the 5G rollout we see. Also, I mean, with the U.S. coming out against Maduro and Venezuela, the Russians and the Chinese are together on the other side. We see a lot of that too. Um, but strategically, if you look at where the Chinese have spent money in One Belt, One Road, most of it is not in Russia because they don't have a lot of good assets to buy or invest in in Russia. And the Russians aren't gonna sell them control of their major oil or minerals companies that are controlled by the state. Um, there's a lot of anti-Chinese racism in Russia. The Chinese have a hell of a lot of people. The Russians have a lot of land with not a lot of people. They're worried about swamping coming from China. And if you look at the countries that Russia thinks are theirs legitimately, like in Central Asia, the Chinese increasingly dominate those countries economically and over time they will politically as well. So long term, I mean, I accept, you know, people like Zbigniew Brzezinski, for example, um, Kissinger and others that have thought that this, it doesn't make sense for the Russians and Chinese to be together. But especially if the US is gonna do unilateralism and is going to annoy countries all over the world by saying you're taking advantage, you're taking advantage, near term the Russians and Chinese find different ways to take advantage of that vacuum. So, Congressman, um, I'm going to pull up the quote because the heads of the intelligence agencies testified before Congress the other day, and there was a, a section of um, uh, uh, Director of National Intelligence Coates' testimony that stood out to me, and I'm, I'm interested in your reaction to this. 
China has the ability to launch cyber attacks that cause localized, temporary, disruptive effects on critical infrastructure. And here's the oddly specific part, such as disruption of a natural gas pipeline for days to weeks. What do you make of Director Coates putting that specific detail out there? And on cyber in particular, we focus so much on Russia with regard to the election. How should we be thinking about China? So I think he's not only trying to educate the American people, I think he's also trying to educate Donald Trump. And what we see is this huge disconnect between what the president thinks and everybody else uh, in intelligence community. And it's really quite disturbing. But if you look at uh, what China did just two years ago under the Obama administration, actually two and a half years ago, uh, public reporting is that they hacked into uh, the databases of the Office of Personnel Management and they stole what's been called the crown jewels of US national intelligence, which is all these security clearance files, millions of them. Uh, I filled them out before, they're known as SF86 forms. They ask very detailed questions, everybody you ever knew, every bad thing you've ever done. It is a treasure trove of potential blackmail and now China has all these records and it wasn't through a kinetic rocket attack, it was through a hack. And so our national security degraded because of cybersecurity. And what was the Trump administration's response? They got rid of their national security White House um, cybersecurity coordinator. So it makes no sense really uh, what the administration is doing and my hope is they sort of see the light and increase, not decrease, cybersecurity defenses. Should we be more aggressive with our cyber countermeasures against nations like Russia, China? I appreciate they're non-state actors who are problematic on this yeah. front where that's, that can be challenging, but, but for the state actors, right. how, should we be more aggressive? Uh, so let me answer that in, in, in two ways. Um, so the intelligence agencies do this cool thing, it's sort of like open house for members of Congress to see their cool toys. So I went through that um, and well, I, so it's classified. What I can tell you is we've got awesome, cool toys in terms of cybersecurity. Uh, we can do a lot uh, offensively. Defensively is a, another issue. And um, the dot mill side is pretty good, right? So our DOD, uh, for example, shifted last decade to two-factor authentication. So for me, I'm still in the Air Force Reserves. For me to even use a word processor, I've got to not only put in my username and password, I have a separate physical card to stick in. The .gov side is nowhere near that level. And so we routinely get hacked in these federal databases all over the place. So uh, it, is, it is a problem defensively and I think we need to just upgrade that at all levels. Do you agree? Uh, sure, uh, and I, I also think it's really hard to understand, even though our offensive capabilities are really great, I mean, the fact is the Obama administration knew what was going on with the elections. Uh, they, w towards the end of the process, they didn't want to like, you know, be seen as politicizing it. They still could have taken steps after the election. They chose not to, despite all these great toys. Why? Because they were worried that they wouldn't be able to contain that level of escalation. And when I see what the Russians did against Ukraine a couple of years ago, when they took our own you know, virus developed by malware from the National Security Agency, not Petya, they developed it against Ukraine. They destroyed 10% of Ukraine's computers, country of 50 million people. They took 1% off of Ukraine's GDP and they cost billions and billions of dollars of damage to Western companies that happen to have a guy with a computer on the ground, FedEx, uh, Mendelez, um, uh, Maersk most importantly, their all their global shipping was shut down for two weeks 
because they're enti- they didn't know the disposition of any single box container on any ship. Now, either the Russians did not know that it could skip out of Ukraine and cause that damage, or they did not care. Right. Either of those are really bad. And if I think about where the Mueller investigation and the Southern District of New York investigations are going and how much information we are likely to have about misdealings of people quite close to Putin with Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, the Russians are going to be really angry about that, about that becoming public. Why? Uh, Because Putin doesn't like it when you go after his friends, right? And so history will tell you that one of the biggest risks out there in the near term, and by the way, this is not a very risky year geopolitically. Like, we're not about to go to war with the North Koreans. The Iranians are still in the deal, even though we pulled out. Like, we're going to have some kind of a sort of deal with the Chinese. Like, there are not a lot of things that are about to explode in 2019. But the potential that the Russians overreact in dangerous ways using cyber to what comes out of these investigations strikes me as maybe the most significant near-term risk. And to Ted's point, we need to really know as a nation how we want to respond to that kind of thing. And, and just on that point, you, you may have read, <clears throat> so Special Counsel Mueller, they don't speak a lot, but every now and then they do speak. And they recently disclosed that uh, they gave discovery uh, to uh, American lawyers who are representing their Russian client uh, in, in this uh, Russia case or these Russian companies. And then they saw this discovery appear publicly, which is a no-no. And then the Russians modified some of these documents to try to um, make Special Counsel Mueller's office look bad. So the Russians are engaging in this in, in a big way because they clearly uh, are scared of the Special Counsel's investigation. There's a, there's a terrific moment early in Ben Rhodes's wonderful new book, The World As It Is, early on where um, he describes an interaction post-election but before Trump takes office um, between um, Xi Jinping and President Obama where basically the, the Chinese leader is sending a shot across the bow with regard to Trump. Um, and yet with what we've seen in the emerging back and forth with China, it doesn't, to, to the point in your report of saying they don't seem to be ready to take the gloves off. Why not? Why aren't, why aren't they seeing weakness and pouncing right now? Why are the Americans? So why aren't the Chinese oh. seeing the weakness and pouncing beyond Belt Road? Um, look, I, I think that, first of all, their economy is slowing, right? Um, and so this is a bad time for them to engage in a trade war. And Xi Jinping's speech a week ago domestically saying we have to be concerned about black swans and gray rhino risks and this is dangerous, dangerous for us politically, that is a big deal. But I think that Xi Jinping has responded to what they've seen from the Trump administration and Brexit and the unwind of the West's leadership in the world, which is when he decided a year ago, March, to end term limits for presidential power in China. I mean, we all as a nation assumed that as China became wealthier, moved from investment-based to consumer-based investment and became a middle-income country, which they now are, 1.4 billion people, that they would become more like us. They would politically reform and open. They would become more economically a free market capitalist society. That was wrong. And their willingness to show that off publicly and not say, oh, we're small, we're poor, we can't lead, but actually say, no, we're willing to take the lead and we're gonna create an alternative rule set. It's not that we, don't, we want more voting rights in the World Bank or the IMF. We're going to create alternative institutions and countries that rely on us economically are gonna use our standards and our rules. I think that that is fundamental 
It's a shift that's been coming for decades, but it's one that Xi Jinping as an individual leader having more control in China than anyone since Mao has been very willing to display to the world in the last two years. Congressman, um, our friend Chris Schroeder, who wrote Startup Rising and, and travels through the developing world meeting with entrepreneurs and investors, um, says that the China model is very much on the rise. It's very appealing. More people lifted out of poverty, broader middle class, better ability to provide high caliber services. This is, this is the perception, not me saying it. Um, uh, but you can't criticize your government. And since America seems to be breaking apart, like we prefer that model. When you think globally, how concerned are you about that as an emerging worldview for millennials and Gen Z seeing what's happening? So a lot of people have been lifted out of poverty across the world, not just in China. So as you get uh, advanced technologies and, and other improvements, uh, it's happening all over. Uh, I would always prefer a political system where you can change the leader through voting because you never know when the leader is going to go off the rails. And America has this amazing ability to self-correct. So we did that last November. The American voters came out and self-corrected uh, some of this. In China, right, if you have uh, the way they're constituted, they could just disappear business leaders, right? They could pick people in this room and just disappear you. That is not a system I want to be in. I'd rather be not as wealthy and not have that happen. Uh, and so people have to make a choice. But on Ian's point, China's um, economy is slowing. So let's, let's see how, how the model actually goes uh, in the next few decades. In, in terms of how that plays out in the U.S., and in particular in terms of our norms, our institutions holding up, um, there's a, a recent survey that shows that only 30% of Americans born in the 1980s believe it's essential to live in a democracy. 24% believe democracy is actually a bad way or a very bad way to govern. Right. So on, on, and domestically, how worried should we be about this? A little more. I mean, Germans also, young Germans don't have a problem with nationalism. Um, they, weren't, they don't remember the Nazis. Most of them don't remember the wall. Um, a lot of South Korean youth prefer a Chinese model to the United States, and they think that their relationship with the Americans are why they have problems with North Korea right now. You know, institutional memory can be really short, especially when there's fragmentation and polarization in a society, which social media, of course, really helps to facilitate. I, I think we have to be worried that a lot of Americans believe that the system is rigged against them and so therefore are starting to lose their trust and legitimacy in that system. None of us would rather live in a Chinese system and a world where China's the dominant economy is going to be worse governed, it's gonna be more risky, right. more prone to fall apart. It's gonna have a lot of things that we don't value as Americans, but if Americans can't come together and say what it is that we actually stand for, we're not providing much of an alternative. So one of their silver linings of Donald Trump is he has um, taught a lot of civics to the American public and actually I think got people a lot more interested in democracy. I went through law school. I had no idea what the emoluments clause was. No one ever taught us about the emoluments clause. Now half America knows about it. And I think what you're seeing is all this civic participation and you had this huge voter turnout last November. So I think um, people might now be thinking, okay, maybe we actually do want democracy. Uh, we don't want a president that just gets enabled uh, by uh, Congress. We want Congress to be a separate and co-equal branch. Right. And before we, before we have to wrap up, um, I, I think that's exactly right. And a lot of us are consuming this incredible stream of news. It's very hard to step back and get perspective. And you all obviously have access to insights beyond what's classified. What, 
what is it that most of us don't know about or probably aren't thinking about the right way that we should be thinking about when it comes to global risk and America's standing in the world? Sure. For me, I guess it would just be how dramatically and quickly the Chinese have become a technology superpower. I think that we are increasingly in an arms race of sorts with the Chinese, and the question will be whether big data and mediocre scientists are stronger than not as, not as big data and great scientists. Uh, you talk to people in the AI field, the jury's out. But the fact is that fi even five years ago, we thought of technology as largely empowering democracy and undermining authoritarian regimes. Think about the Arab Spring. Increasingly today, technology is actually empowering surveillance, top-down verticals, and weakening a lot of democracies. And if that is true, that has to change the way we, you know, sort of risk assess China versus the U.S., despite the fact that their economy is right now right. showing some signs of real distress. Right. Uh, so there are lots of things that can hurt us. Uh, there's one that can kill us. So cyber attacks can hurt us. Bad trade policy hurts us. A nuclear war would kill us. And if you ever look at the nuclear launch approval process in the United States, it is very simple. One person, the president, wakes up one day and says, I want to launch nuclear weapons. Order goes down in chain of command, missiles launch. It is that easy. The Secretary of Defense is not involved. No other cabinet member is involved. No member of the Congress is involved. No member of the judiciary. And uh, Senator Markey and I looked at this and thought, this is flat out unconstitutional because that would be an, a declaration of war to launch nuclear weapons. And only Congress has that power. Uh, so we've introduced legislation uh, that says the president cannot initiate a nuclear first strike without congressional authorization. We actually did it during Obama's term when everyone here thought Hillary was gonna be president, so it's not partisan, but Donald Trump has made it more urgent. Um, let's end on a note of optimism. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> try, right? right. <laughs> so what, what, what should we walk out of here feeling like, okay, th this is a reason for us to believe that America is going to restore its position in the world order and these risks are going to, while they may increase, they're manageable. We're not going to come back to the position in the world order we used to have, but our country is not in terminal decline. You look at the energy resources, the food resources, the technology resources. No, but what's really exciting is that you look over the last hundred years and almost all the major problems we experienced largely had to be resolved by a small group of white men. Um, I mean, we're capable, but it's a little much for us, right? You now, with globalization, you now are bringing in women and Asians and Latin Americans and Africans are becoming part of the solution. You unlock that much brain power, over seven billion people, it's hard not to be optimistic about the future of the planet. Uh, the, the fact that Special Counsel Bowler still has his job, I think shows our institutions are strong, and we've got Disneyland. Like, how cool is that, right? So, so ne ne next year we're gonna serve drinks during this panel. Uh, for right, now, so, please, please right. thank Ian and the Congressman for joining right. us. Thank you, everyone.